Thank you so much for listening to Urbanistica podcast. I am Mustafa Sharif, an urban planner, and you're more than welcome to join my big journey of exploring the making of smarter and more livable cities. Please don't forget to follow Urbanistica on the different social media platforms. And also let's connect on LinkedIn. Big thanks to Urbanistica podcast partner, Afri. Afri is an international engineering and design company providing sustainable solutions in the fields of energy, industry, and infrastructure. Are you ready for a new episode? Let's go for it. Pleasure to welcome you, Huda, to Urbanistica podcast. Hey, and welcome. Pleasure is mine. Thank you very much. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. It's the weekend in uh, Abu Dhabi, so um, very relaxed. So, how is uh, the weather in Abu Dhabi now? Uh, it's the summer, so as you would expect, it's uh, warm and humid. But I, uh, I grew up in the UAE, so this is normal in a sense. What, what a lot of the world sees as an extreme. Uh, it's something that uh, actually in this part of the world, in the in the Gulf, we've learned to live with and adapt to. Yeah. Is it like a summer vacation or no still? Did you have your summer vacation? Yes, I went for, um, I spent two weeks in Jordan this summer. Nice. So let's, uh, let's start with you. You're our storyteller. How would you like to introduce yourself to our listeners? I call myself the Green Urbanista. And, uh, and that kind of picks up the two aspects of my professional interests, which are sustainability and urban planning. So I'm a chartered town planner and a chartered environmentalist. Um, I've been working since 2007 in the Gulf region, primarily based in the UAE. I worked with developers, worked for 12 years with the consultancy, built environment, and the past two years I've worked with uh, government entities as an advisor to the public sector on uh, planning and sustainable cities. So the green uh, urbanista, right? Yes. <laughs> what is your passion? What are you passionate about? I'm passionate about uh, planning better cities for people and the planet. I feel that, that there, I'm convinced there's a more harmonious way for us to live as a human race in a way that is fulfilling to us and healthy for us and also acknowledges and gives back to the rest of the world. When, when did it like... Uh this passion start did you have like a specific moment or are you it's something you develop through the time i don't know that there's been a specific moment and to be honest my my career has has meandered so i you know started off in <laughs> my first degree was in chemistry um so i think that i was interested in the environment from a young age i remember attending a school play around uh, it was the, the, <laughs> the ozone layer was the big thing in the, in the 90s yeah. and uh, it sparked an interest in me in kind of the the natural world and, and the human impact on it and what we can do to to fix it um but really i i was more interested in the sciences than in a built environment um, but coming back to Dubai after my master's degree in 2007, the, Dubai was a big construction site. So at the time, um, you know, wanting to make an impact in the, in the place where I grew up, I, I worked as a, an environmental scientist for a real estate developer. And that was my introduction to the construction industry. And I realized actually how much of a gap there is in terms of a um, strategic understanding of what are the environmental and sustainability opportunities 
um, that are relevant locally, and then being able to talk to to one to convince the people why it's important, but also to integrate it in the design process and be able to talk the language and um, you know understanding the local context and the global drivers, and that's uh, that's what I've been doing for, since two thousand seven. Wow, is it difficult, like um, the work you do, to co- to convince, to explain, in the region? So, it's a it's a challenge, like like anywhere else. And I guess my my mindset is that if I can get, um, I'm not expecting to you know, change people overnight or to switch decisions. But for me, if I can get one person to think slightly differently about the topic or acknowledge the maybe uh, what's what really kind of uh, motivates me is seeing the light bulb moments on on people's faces <laughs> there, there may be a concept that they didn't understand or or a, mm. like something some it's very easy to use jargon and to complicate things and people actually maybe don't know what you know when people say smart city or green building or you know water pollution what does that yeah. term actually mean how is it how is it relevant to me and I, what I really like is kind of joining the dots. I'm a multidisciplinary professional. So, you know, I'm a scientist, but I'm also an urban planner. I'm also, I did the minor in public health. So for me, I like understanding the kind of breaking down the complex complexities into simpler uh, connected ideas and also making them locally relevant. Yeah, so it's more like um, you tell the complex story in a more simple way to make it understandable. Yeah, yes. And it's, to be honest, it's not about um, uh, I think it needs to be simple because actually, I mean, um, in order for anybody to take action, they have to understand what they're getting into. And the only people that benefit from the complexity are the people who don't want to start to take action, don't want us to understand. They want to seem, you know, use big words or be smarter than anyone. So, really, sim- <laughs> it's actually, you know, as as um, uh, you know, designers and mathematicians and most people know, it's actually harder to be simpler right the it takes a lot yeah, of yeah. understanding to get down to the simple message what does this actually mean yeah exactly and also i read an article that says that um when people start to use very complex words when they tell a story it means they they are not really smart as how they think they sound as simple words as you use then it's you're like more smarter or you understand the story or the complexity exactly so so part of the challenge for myself is can do I understand this well enough to be able to explain it to somebody in simple terms? Um, and then you know, am I can I can do I understand what their drivers are and what they want to do? And can I find an angle that interests them in what in you know, and so that there's a there's an angle to influence their decision? Yeah. So like in the in this podcast, I used to have many stories from um, different parts of the world, and and today with you, I'm I'm happy that we're gonna talk about. Gulf Corporation Council and the cities there and the future. So to start with, like talking about uh, livability and sustainability and the green and health cities, all of these elements, uh, tell me and to the listeners that which countries are under the umbrella of uh, the Gulf Corporation Council? The GCC, the Gulf Corporation Council. So United Arab Emirates, Oman, Qatar, Bahrain, and Saudi Arabia. Those are the countries that form the, the GCC. Um there is a variation in terms of the climate and culture, but there's also a lot of commonalities. And so it's we're talking about generally an arid climate, uh, generally a for a, a transient population with a large portion of expats, um, relatively high GDP, although recently in the past kind of uh, century or half century. So there is a, a, a very 
uh, fast growing population, but also a very young population. So these elements kind of make up the commonalities and the, the starting point of the context uh, I work in. Mm. And, and, and does like the municipalities or the government work uh, together as a collaboration when it comes to like city development or no, each country uh, working by its own? So that's actually each city working by its own most of the time. Each city. <laughs> okay. yeah, so there is some very high level of cooperation, but um, really this, I mean, and this is this is the interesting thing about urban planning. The, we're talking about local decisions at the city level. There may be some coordination at a federal or country level, uh, but even that is uh, light touch generally. Yeah. So before we talk about like um, the, the future and what, to, to do what are the the challenges that cities are facing now um so i think in in many ways similar to cities around the world so um there is obviously the climate crisis and what does that mean in terms of sea level rise for example because a lot of the cities are coastal not randomly but because that's kind of access access to water etc um there are also questions around um how to move away from the car culture, which has um, led to not only a large ecological footprint, but also uh, health challenges, obesity. And so how can we make cities which were designed for the car, cities with the, recently, all these cities functioned obviously without a car um, a century ago, but the the thing in the second half of last century and early first decade of the century, it was about, you know, the mentality and perception is it's too hot to walk. Nobody wants to walk. We have the money. This is a, you know, developing country. We want to have the image of luxury or development, whatever the terminology is. And so it's all about big streets, um, you know, uh, very green lawns, lots of cars, the bigger, the better. Uh, big houses we're still in the kind of bigger is better mentality and so it's um, you know revising or revising expectations and culture and really explaining to people what are the impacts of this type of planning and built environment on their lives and then on the planet and pushing for a change and it's it's gradual uh, but it's I, I think cities around the world uh, grapple with with similar challenges yeah, yeah. Like even even here uh, in in Sweden, we also like face this challenge about the car uh, based city. You know, like if you don't have car, you cannot really use the different functions within the city. Now, like all the cities starting like to shift to more walkable city and so on. But like, is is it how to say? Is it easy to to convince or to to explain or to change the culture that okay, we should move from car oriented city to more like a human centric city? or more like a green city? I think it's the, the challenges are there anywhere you are in the world. What makes this part of the world unique, perhaps, is the um, appetite for innovation, the agility of change. Once there's a kind of a, um, a decision at the top, it trickles down fairly quickly. There's also a large expat population and a, and, a, and a transient population. So you have people with ideas from around the world and people that come in every day who are basically ready to fit into a new uh, mode of living because that's it's going to be a change for them anyway. Um, so, I, I mean, I've, I've been working in the region since 2007, so about 15 years. And, you know, when I started, the word sustainability almost didn't exist, you know, day to day. And then went to, you know, green buildings being the big thing 
um, a few few years later. Um, then ideas of um, now it's a really also a lot about health and well-being and livability and resilience, especially when we talk about post-COVID. Um, so there there is a change definitely. You'll and and it's I you know five years ago people would tell me you know why are you even in Dubai? Like it's Dubai has developed as a car-centric city. Um, there's no way, it's too late now. How are they going to retrofit the walkability, for example? And actually, if you look at some, what, what Dubai has done, for, and as an example, over the last five years, um, in terms of, for example, cycling lanes and how many kilometers of cycling lanes, and not just kilometers, but how people are using them and how they're changing mindsets, changing infrastructure, spending from purely highways, adding in the other transport modes, the metro, for example, connecting the metro to the other to other aspects of um, of the built environment. So the change is happening. Yes, it's harder when the city is built, when you were a revitalization, when it's a greenfield, but it's happening. And so it's a, you know, I'm, it's, it's, people are getting um, used to the idea of walkability uh, at the city level, at the government level. Governments want to attract talent. They want to attract FDI, foreign direct investment. So it, so they want to attract people and, and typically people who are the global nomads. They want to live in places that are walkable, that they ha that have a community spirit. So there is motivation even from an economic perspective to build in that livability. So, so change, change is happening. I was in Dubai actually last year when it was uh, Expo, and it was interesting to see like the metro, the as you mentioned the bike lines and so on. So it's it's I'm 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 happy to see that the changes are happening, and it's it's a question of time and budget. So until you get the, the city transformed to more like bikeable, walkable, and green city, and like what is what is like the biggest challenge? Let's talk about. Um, the city is like biggest challenge in, in in order to to become more walkable, bikeable, and green cities. What is like that? The main challenges. So, for if we talk about an existing uh, major city, the like Riyadh, for example, or um, or perhaps Abu Dhabi or uh, Dubai, these cities have fairly new infrastructure that have been built over the past, let's say, 30, 40 years. But, and, and Riyadh is a is a good example. It's probably an extreme in a sense that. You know, it, it's um, huge highways, uh, urban sprawl. And so how do you kind of retrofit walkability into that? And you know, transport and, and land use planning or urban planning go hand in hand. So there's no point in putting a pedestrian path in if it doesn't take you anywhere. If it's, if it, you know, if I live um, 20 kilometers away from my workplace or my kid's school or, you know, the mall, even if you put a pedestrian pathway, I'm not going to walk 20 kilometers. So it's about how it's the how do we change the land use mix? How do we make this you know the city more walkable? Not just the walking infrastructure, but also in terms of where do people get their services? How do they live their lives? And within with new cities with new developments, that's a lot easier. With existing cities, that becomes a challenge. Of course, and and you mentioned like uh, biking and walking. I know. Like uh, all of us know, like the weather is, is the biggest challenge as well. Like, okay, maybe you have an infrastructure for walking and biking, but then it's like super hot. It's uh, kind of impossible to be outdoor. So how is, is it, is it possible to make a city life when the, the weather is so hot? Um, so I don't think the weather is the biggest challenge because we're not talking about walking in the middle of the day, in the middle of the summer. What we're talking about is walking in the mornings and the evenings, most of the year. So 
and that's actually very very doable and once people live you know 5 10 15 minutes to where they work or where they study they can actually do that trip if it's safe and comfortable and all it takes is providing the safety and the shading even in the hot weather um and the culture shift so uh, you know it's, this is this is what baffles me because to me why is you know 40 degrees c any worse than minus 40 degrees c you know why is it why is it a challenge in um you know the gulf when it's on it's you know warm in the middle of the day for a few months in the year but actually it's quite pleasant for ev- in evenings most of the year versus other countries or other cities where it might be the flip side it's you know snowing yeah like here in stockholm for example i don't it's snowing for half of the year or whatever so yes i mean i'm not going to be naive and say it's not a challenge it is a challenge but i don't think it's the primary challenge i think that uh, for most of the year people can do many of their trips through active travel so how do we as urban practitioners makes people walk like use the infrastructure what do we need to do so one is obviously provide the infrastructure um yeah. and uh, plan the city so that the the uses are you know you can walk to your shop or to the office or to the school or 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 cycle like or. like con- connecting the functions correct but also making sure the distances are uh, make sense from a active mobility perspective the there's also so I, an important um part of planning which is you know the an important question to ask is who are the losers and this is important because we live in a in a real world and what i mean by that is yes we can think win win but in reality there there may be multiple winners but there almost inevitably is a loser right there is very very few i can't think of any planning you know city planning decisions that have zero losers <laughs> and and so why is that important it's important because if the 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 car users have to be losers in some of the decisions for in order for this to work we're going to you know if the criteria is going to be we can have walkability as long as it doesn't impact the car user we're never going to get there because actually part of um helping the shift is people realize that walking or cycling or or the metro is more convenient comfortable than the car journey as long as the car journey is the fastest and the more co- most comfortable you're not going to get that transition of course yeah because it makes sense like uh, save time uh, money and also correct cost cost comfort convenience these are the three c's when we're talking about transport cost comfort convenience so part of making walk uh, you know active travel or um uh, low carbon mobility attractive is making sure that the cost convenience um and comfort compared to the car is better yeah and how is it going now with like uh, building new districts and so on are 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 um, let's say municipality or cities paying attention to all of these uh, elements or they are doing the same like car oriented uh, district so uh, there are some interesting examples of change um there was an announcement a few months ago by um dubai government about a new emirati housing community and the what caught my attention is that uh, you know this community is being planned based on the principles of the new dubai urban plan dubai 2040 uh, which are driven by sustainability and well-being considerations and so part part of the offering will be not just the usual detached villas but um higher density townhouses for example 
And so just being just being in a position to offer a more dense typology, and um, and it's also part of the plan was to integrate walkability, etc. So that to me is a huge shift. It may not appear like much, but it's this is a topic that's been talked about for decades, and it's the first time this is now hopefully going to happen. So so I do see a, a a positive change happening. And do you see also like still that? Um... It's like what's happening now is a kind of copy of other cities or no? You start to see like now there is more focus on the cultural identity of the city and so on. Or no, you still like, okay, let's take this concept from that city. Let's bring this concept from that city. What, what do you see like in general? Yeah, so typically the copycat concepts come from, come at an architectural scale a lot of times, right? When we're talking about buildings. Yes, there is the principles in terms of, you know, um, highway design or, you know, the American planning versus British planning. Um, but the, so, I, so to answer your question, I see less copycats. Uh, it's re And I don't think really it was, I don't think the driver was copycat for a lot of, architecturally perhaps, but from a planning perspective, it was, you know, sometimes it's just about how do, how does the city make the most returns in the shortest amount of Time. So how can they sell off land to people and get the real estate industry to boom? And, and usually if you reduce the red tape around planning, you make it easier for people to invest, to buy, to build, then the economic cycle moves faster. So it's not really about just, you know, it's not about, oh, we want uh, Manhattan and Dubai. It's about, we want people to invest in Dubai. And this is the easiest way. Or Abu Dhabi or Riyadh or some, you know, it's not, I'm just using. So, um, but yeah, I think there is a lot more uh, understanding of the local climate, the local uh, culture, the local requirements, and partly because there is a, a development in the um, professional skills locally. So it's less about you know planners or architects, designers flying in from abroad and and flying out, and a lot more now the the people living in the cities are actually designing for that city, and and this um, this knowledge. And experiences accumulated over the past, you know, two decades. That's that's great to hear. So, Huda, like uh, to summarize, like what should urban practitioners working in the region think about in order to make the city more uh, walkable, bikeable, and accessible to people? Um, so, I think mobility is. Let's take uh, active mobility. It's really key because it addresses um, sustainability in terms of, let's say, carbon emission, greenhouse gases, climate change. So if you walking and cycling are zero carbon mobility modes, it also addresses um, health and well-being because active travel, you know, you, you're getting the exercise in, in the day, you're getting access to nature, to people. It also addresses livability because um, you have um, generally, if you're walking or you're cycling, you're meeting people, you're interacting with the community, you're not in your own box you don't go from a you know a, an apartment to a parking garage to a car to the to an office you're actually you're you're interacting with the um community around you and also it addresses resilience because you're providing a multiple uh, transport modes so you're providing robustness resilience redundancy so you know tick on carbon tick on livability tick on well-being tick on resilience um so what what do we need to do to make it happen, be able to articulate the case for it on all these fronts. Um, so understanding that, you know, and because it depends, you know, the 
specific client might be more interested in well-being or resilience or whatever it is. So we have to be able to articulate the case for uh, multimodal transport, for active travel, for public transport, and in the words that the client will understand. Um, it's also important to to not think of transport on its own. We really need to think about how does this transport solution work with the land use planning and get you know get the land use transport discussion happening because that the solution would end up being both together. Um, I think number three is. Uh, being open about behavior change. So in 2008, when the metro was being built, just Dubai Metro was being built just before it opened, the big discussion was, you know, is this going to be a success or not? And there were many people who thought it was going to be a failure. You know, 9-9-2009, the Dubai Metro opened. On the 10th of September, that question disappeared because guess what? It was the most successful public space in the city. Everybody uses the metro. Um, it's convenient. It's cheap. It's comfortable, right? It's um, we go back to the three C's. So if if the Dubai government was of the mindset and this is too difficult to change, they wouldn't have put, invested in the metro. But actually, it's we have to be you know um, aware that change will happen. Now, how about we try and influence this change toward a specific direction? as opposed to saying, no, this is too difficult. Nobody's going to walk. It's too hot to bike. No one's going to use the metro. So we have to really be open to not just change, but to shaping the change that will come. Yeah. Do you see um, like the new generation is more open to change? Like to adapt to biking, uh, less car, more metro, you know, like. I think that that is almost a default uh, human nature anywhere. Uh, but even even the because they're they're not set in their ways right they're they're developing their their lifestyle now um but actually generally because of the transient nature of the population because generally if if you're going to leave your home country and come out to the middle of a, a new region to start a life you're probably not afraid of change <laughs> true <laughs> i mean also like about the local because you told me like um there is like a huge uh, young generation now within the population okay let's say the people changing country makes sense that they are more like out of comfort zone or out of the culture. But how how about the local communities? Yes, as you said, there's a it's a relatively a young community, um, and people are well educated. They respect and um, have confidence in the leadership. So if they feel okay, this is an investment that the government has put money into. There must be some thought behind it, and it's probably a good idea. Let me let me try it out. So I think that it works, the confidence works for the benefit of um, convincing people to, you know, to consider a change in culture. It doesn't, obviously, people are different, so not everybody will, will be open to the change. But generally, the mindset is of, you know, innovation is good, change is good. Our country has grown very quickly in a very short amount of time. This is natural. Yeah. So, like, in, in terms of... Um making or transforming our city to more green cities what are the elements that we need to work on um everything so there's a long there's still a lot to do <laughs> you should be specific <laughs> now <laughs> yes yeah, so um you know we talked about mobility and uh, low carbon mobility in terms of uh, walking and cycling and public transport so that's both a land use discussion and also a, a transport discussion and there's also obviously around um, water efficiency and uh, energy efficiency. Um, 
you know, why are we still allowing buildings to go up with very little thermal insulation or with um, without sufficient renewable energy or, or, or. So it's about, there are, and we're, we're in a position now where there are um, relatively good building codes that integrate sustainability, which wasn't the case 20 or even 10 years ago. Now it's about continuing the improving, improvement and pushing so that the baseline continues to improve. Um, Is it like a new regulations coming every few years? There are. there are, And there's been, you know, in the past 10 years, there's, there was a whole sh um, movement towards green building certification. So in addition to the the global lead in BREEAM. There were local rating systems developed by each of the countries, but that remains largely a voluntary approach. Yeah, it's like not mandatory to have it. Correct. Usually there's a minimum level of mandatory, mandatory but it's very, very low. So now, so now the next step, I see some of those requirements being incorporated into the code, which is good. And I think we need to continue to do that and also push the requirements. So the, the minimum requirement is, is more and more stringent almost on a yearly basis. Um, so that's from a resource perspective and from a um, emissions perspective on on transport mobility. Those are the, the the obvious things. Yeah, and what other elements that we need to work on to make our cities more like greener? Um, so the the term green is interesting, and I I've kind of um, this is a, a topic I've looked into and, and, and wrote about and spoken about because the the color green. You're the green urbanista. That's right. Um, the color green in the desert isn't necessarily sustainable, right? If, if because of the water, um, the water requirements. And I think that really, if we we need to um, modify our language around the world, actually, and I don't think it's just in the Gulf, to start talking about nature spaces. So you know, SDG eleven um, has a target on green space. I think that should be nature space, because part of it is actually what's the difference. The difference is um, the desert is nature, but it's not green. The ocean is nature, but it's not green. So it's very easy to say, okay, if the KPI, if the metric in people's head of for a good city or a sustainable city is, what's the area of green space? That means people are not thinking about, uh, planners are not thinking about how do I give the local population access to the coast, access to the desert? They're not valuing the nature that already exists. And what happens is, you know, very simple example but it's a real example um you might have a development that's you know overlooking let's say uh, mangroves uh, indigenous local mangroves which are important from an ecological perspective from a climate mitigation perspective etc etc and adaptation but actually mangroves are not the co the color green or not the the what the you know the global brochures or the global design books on green cities um, reflect when it comes to green space. So a developer might think, okay, actually I will get more value if I uh, take away some of the mangroves, build on top of them and have a, a green park or a golf course or whatever. And actually what the mindset shift has to be, this is an asset, this is nature. So when we're taking, if we change the conversation to talk about access to nature, then they will see it as, okay, I have nature right there. It's there for free. All I have to do is protect it and give people access True. to it. Mm. So, okay, this is a very interesting discussion actually now because, okay, you opened my mind as well, like the difference between nature and green. So uh, like in the GCC countries, so there is nature, but maybe there is no green, greenery, right? Less, yes, less green. So nature comes less, in less all, all sorts of colors. True. 
true, true. And and like uh, the development should be more focused on 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 access to nature instead of creating a green public spaces or areas. Correct. And the both words are important: access and nature. So we just had a discussion around why nature and not green. The word access is really important because having green or nature in the middle of a road where nobody can come interact with it, touch it, feed it, smell it, is useless from a well-being perspective, from a mental health perspective. So if we talk about what are the benefits of nature to people, uh, well-being, mental health, it's about not just whether nature is there or not, not just what the color of nature is, how how much exposure do they have to it, how much uh, interaction do they have to, with it, are they growing food and seeing it grow, or are they just looking at it as they're passing by the car or from a plane or a helicopter. So it really is about the access we give to people. So it's not just about having one gigantic park full of trees that you have to drive to. It's more about having multiple nature experiences at all levels, some some that are local, some that are further away, and having activities within these spaces and having it accessible to people, the young, the old, the people of different accessibility, um, uh, different abilities. So once we start thinking about nature, not green, and access, not aesthetics, then the game changes. And we can start talking about biophilic cities and healthy cities and livable cities, as well as sustainable slash green cities. Yeah. And how is it uh, the situation now? Is there like... um like a, a some nature nature areas within like the city or no you need to go outside in in order to to get access to to have an experience um so the the closest natural spaces are the coast and a lot of the cities are on the coast so there are some of these spaces and there there is a realization that actually we have to make the coast accessible to people the beaches etc so it's not good enough just having them blocked off by five-star hotels we have to give public access to the beach which is a public space in uh, in reality um, so that's happening um there's also like even the inland city so take again Riyadh. Riyadh is not on a coast but there are wadis valleys running through Riyadh. so the, the famous project of wadi hanifa is regenerating a, a natural uh, uh valley so, so that it's um, actually it's a pleasant public space in nature for people to use. It's just it's basically in the city. It's a few minutes away. So it went from being a, a dump for wastewater. Well, it went from being first of all a nature space to a dump for wastewater, and then back to a functional, beautiful, healthy public space for people. Mm. So, what is like uh, your advice now to the all urban practitioners working within this topic, like with the urban design or urban planning within the region? When it comes to how do we create this experience, how do we give access to nature? What should they really think about? Let's say like top three takeaways. So one, understand the local context, right? It's not about planting palm trees or having exotic birds or you know what what um, what is the local context? What where where is the nature um, occurring? That's very important. Two. Um, be multilingual. What do I mean by that? Be able to be able to communicate with uh, across disciplines. So multidisciplinary is what I mean. Um, so it's um, it's a skill for a designer, let's say a landscape architect, to be able to communicate effectively with an ecologist, with a developer, with the architect, with the civil engineer. But in order to design a functional um, you know, public space that has nature embedded in it and that works from a, for a developer. We need we need to be able to talk the language and we need to have all those people around the table. 
Um, so it takes uh, humility because you have to realize that you don't know everything. <laughs> Nobody knows everything. It takes, we should, we should ac just accept that. Yeah, it takes humility because you also have to um, reassess some of your own, uh, what you think is a fact or a given, right? Be, be open to learning and reassessing your own standpoint um, and be willing to share. You know, it takes humility because you're... No, you know you know things that other people don't so you have to be of the mindset of let's let's share and and collaborate so all of this is um doesn't happen naturally actually it's a very conscious decision you have to go out of your way to learn those languages and and practice them but it does um it is a skill but it does you know it's not impossible there um we can get there um so understand the local context two is um multidisciplinary professional talk the languages um three would probably be stay stay up to date so um kind of understand the global drivers as well um so people some people will you know climate change is a scary topic for them um it's and it's something that they actually they don't think is part of their professional um responsibilities to understand so obviously not everybody has time to be a climate change expert and that's not what we need but kind of be aware of the the global trends. Where is the world going? Because actually, the players in the market are sometimes global. Whether it's a you know a global client wanting a new headquarters building or uh, an, uh, a tenant who's coming from this part of the world. So what do, what are what do people expect? What's the latest? What's happening? Um, so that's that's also important. Yeah, amazing, and uh, like. We are talking about city, talked about mobility, nature versus green, and so on. Like, what what about the tech part of of making city? You know, like talk a lot about smart cities and so on. Is is this still happening, or is this like can can all these three come together, or no? Sure, I think the the, the sustainability to me is a uh, a purpose or a goal. Uh, well being is a goal. The tech technology as a means. The technology on, on in and of its own is not a goal. Technology to do what? Now, to get to sustainability, to get to well-being, to get to livability, to get to resilience, technology is part of the solution. Um, so yes, they they definitely go hand in hand in my mind. Yeah. And on reality? And in reality, yes. There's a um, you know, some people like the flashy stuff, we would invest more into it. <laughs> and that's that's fine. I mean, uh, actually, you know, there are um some fantastic technological solutions um actually, and it's um we would need a lot of the technology we have today to survive the climate crisis the good news is though we have most of the technology that we need so it's about figuring out how to how to best use it okay let's talk now about about the community the urban practitioners we talked about city let's talk about us the community what should like urban practitioners in the, in, the, in the region stop doing when they plan or design cities? Um, a lot of times, uh, practitioners are um, working under a lot of pressure in terms of very tight deadlines, very tight budgets, very demanding uh, scopes, very high expectations. And they just simply don't have the time to, they don't have the luxury to to think, to discuss, to research. 
So I, I don't think it's a, you know, you know it's, it's easy for me to say they must do one, two, three, four, five. And I think most people would actually do a lot of that if they had the chance. Um, so yes, part of the change comes from the practitioners being uh, more more aware, more engaged. Um, actually, I think we have a, a very talented pool of practitioners in this region. The challenge in my mind is with the um, the, the the brief they've been given. You know, if the, if the client is set on a particular direction and wants to have this in this time frame in this budget, there's just really no room for collaboration, discussion, new ideas. So things going fast. And there's not really room for discussion or reflecting. Correct. So how do we change this? Um, it's about value, right? It's about convincing the client that, yes, you may you may need to spend a little bit more upfront on the design or on the planning, but actually you will get a much better product, a much, you know, well thought out, may end up reducing your capex and your opex. It becomes a, you have a unique product that is, you know, you can sell for higher or attract more or better. And and we see that happening. There There is, it's, it is now more about the quality of the product than just having a product. But there, there is still a lot of pressure on the um, designers and the contractors to meet specific deadlines or to work under certain terms and conditions or to have, you know, um, work working hours. And that, I think we, there need, we need to build this trust in the industry between the clients and the consultants and the contractors that, you know, if the consultants say they need more time, they need more time. <laughs> <laughs> and, were, and, and at the moment, that trust, unfortunately, isn't there. And the competition is very high. So it, it's not a very conducive environment for, um, you know, research or innovation, really. It's not like a healthy competition. Correct. And I, I imagine, like, um, in order to create, like, a healthy cities and so on, we also, as a practitioner, need to be healthy and, and, and understand what we are doing within ourselves instead of being, like, stressed and want to deliver and uh, from one project to another project to another project without reflecting but this is like super important point because we we have it here as well like let's say in in sweden it's also like it's in every country there is like the limited budget limited amount of hours deadlines and so on but i think it's important to take some let's say it's, we're not talking about so many hours a few hours could be enough right so a few hours could be enough if there's a resource that's available which is locally relevant um, research. So this is the other side of the equation because it's, I mean, it's a lot better now, but 10 years ago, I couldn't pick up a book and read about the urban history of Dubai or Abu Dhabi or Riyadh or um, Muscat. Because there is no, not uh, material? Because nobody's, yeah, correct, nobody's actually published a book on it, right? Okay. Mm. So nobody's published a book on what are the topologies and the impact of them on livability or walkability. Now, a lot of that research is there, actually, um, for many reasons. So there is a, a local body of relevant research that's developing, but we need more of that. And and that, if you have that readily available, then it's easier for the practitioners who will never, even if they have the most, you know, flexible timeframes, they're never, <laughs> they're not going to go back into academia and do a PhD on this. They need to have a starting point, which they can then build on. So you need the, those two sides of the equation, the practitioner that is open-minded and has the luxury of time to be able to explore the options, and the academic and research community, which also understands the relevant topics and questions and is answering them through, through rigorous research and kind of working together. Yeah, but it's, it's, it's great that like the research team is, is growing and producing material. It's, it's very important. 
Yes, yes, it's uh, good news, definitely. Yeah. And is there like a big, how to say, platforms to, to bring uh, the two disciplines together to talk, to discuss like associations, organizations, meetings? So again, that's something that's um, recently growing. In the past, so the Emirates Planning Association, for example, started in the last three years. And it's been once started in Saudi Arabia and once started in Oman. So within the last three years. Um, and those are good uh, forums because, you know, if you're a planner, whether you're an academic or a practitioner, you belong to the same association. And then there could be like conferences and joint research projects, etc. So it's early days, but that um, infrastructure is starting to develop. Great. So, okay. So back to the question about what should we stop doing? So first one is like about uh, stop stressing and take a moment to reflect uh, other points that are other things that we should stop doing. Um, the one you talked about, which is copy paste, <laughs> you know, it's on, um, and it's again, it's a, it's a. But maybe, maybe, Huda, maybe, maybe we are doing the copy paste because we don't have time, right? So Correct. we just need to put something, and it's a kind of crazy to to say that now. Yeah, no, absolutely, a hundred percent. That's maybe because we don't have time. Maybe because the client wants a copy paste. Like they've told you, yeah. I want this district in Vancouver to be here in Dubai. That's what. Yeah. That's the brief. <laughs> but um, I guess to the extent possible. Um, yeah. thinking of locally relevant solutions. Obviously, there's we, we all learn from international benchmarks and case studies, but it's using them as a reference, as a you know maybe starting point or a source of inspiration as opposed to the solution that I'm only mm. then going to tweak slightly. Yeah. Okay, so stop copy-pasting. <laughs> stop copy-pasting. <laughs> Give yourself some time. Stop copy-pasting. Um, and I think stop working in silos. It's going back to this interdisciplinary um mindset of it's all oh, i i know i'm the architect i have the solution or i'm the developer i have the solution or i'm the contractor i know what's best it's really being um open to this multidisciplinary discussion great more points or we move to the next question <laughs> we can move on <laughs> what are what are the skills that we should develop as urban practitioners um definitely an understanding of the climate crisis and how it affects the cities we work in yeah, you know, it's amazing how uh, a few weeks ago I was having a discussion with, um, you know, uh, professionals who were involved in the topic and they couldn't, you know, they, I had to explain to them the difference between climate change mitigation and adaptation. You know, and where we are today, that should be just basic vocabulary for anybody in the built environment. You know, what, how, what, do, what do we mean when we say mitigation, bringing down carbon emissions or adaptation and addressing that? So we don't, we can't even understand the basics. You know, it's, it's going to be very difficult. Um, and I think the second skill is about, also about multidisciplinary working. So as opposed to, okay, I'm a, being able to discuss with the different professionals, understand how do you function in a multidisciplinary the thing where it said it's an ideation workshop or, and, and zooming out. And this is, I mean, not some people are really good at the detail stuff and we need people like that. So I'm not saying everybody has to be strategic or everybody has to be a multidisciplinary. We need subject ex matter experts. We need detailed people that do like detailed design or focused on a particular topic. But even those people have to have a level of confidence and communication skill to be able to express their ideas to other disciplines, convince people. So it's those soft skills of communicating um, uh, your idea and generating buy-in, not with 
your technical peers, not with somebody who does exactly what you do, but with somebody who doesn't even understand what you do. <laughs> how can <laughs> how can you communicate your idea in a in a simple way, in a clear way, in a convincing way? Um, so communication skills is the second one. And I think the third one is related to technology. So the digital age. So the digital tools that each each profession profession has to have um, and continue to develop because it's not about you know, one once in a lifetime. It's just continuing to be open to the digital changes that are coming and, and use them to cut time, to improve quality, um, to, to generate actually more discussion. Yeah. And also like Huda, in your, in your opinion, because when we work with the city development, it's easy that we we be, become a generalist, like talk about mobility, green city, uh, nature-based city, and so on, you know? Uh, is it better to be like a generalist and uh, have a few knowledge within a different field? Or no, it's better to be niched and focus on one topic. What is like your... Because many, many of colleagues are questioning, we're talking a lot here, should I pick something and be a super expert in this or no should i stay like this and you know have a little thing from everything we need both and some people have also different uh, strengths so play to your strength if you're somebody that um uh, ha, you know their strengths are strategic thinking and they're interested in many topics and they're good at linking topics and maybe being a generalist is, is better suited. If you're somebody actually that wants to dive deep into a particular topic, is very passionate about a specific angle, go for that. So I don't think it's kind of either or. We need we need bo- we need both types of professionals. Yeah. And how do you see like recently um we see many concepts, new concepts like a 15 minute city, like a one minute city, and so on. Do you see these concepts can be implemented? Within the region or no? They can, but this is going back to understanding what do these concepts actually mean? How can do they make sense for the context and how can we implement them? So this is this is the danger of you know star planners. You're like you have star architects, star architects, you have star planners. Um that you know it's not about we don't plan cities based on um you know um thirty second sound bites or an idea that sounds fun. This, I mean, we're talking about a lot of money going into projects that will stay for a long period of time and have a significant impact on people's lives. So yes, and environment, and, yeah. and the environment, absolutely. So yes, all for innovation and learning and improving, but it needs to be more than just a catchy phrase. Yeah, <laughs> I I understand your point because he is here also like. Um... The question is like, should we keep running after new concepts and new trends and just because like they have a catchy names? So it's important also we explore what's behind it and see if this is going to benefit the, the, the land, the environment, the people or not. So do you, do you see it or not? Do I see it with? Like, let's say, do you see that we're going to say about Dubai that's going to be a 15-minute city or a one-minute city or not? There, there is a willingness to become, you know, whether it's Dubai or Riyadh or any other city in the region, there is a willingness to become the best, whether it's the best in terms of quality of life or the best in terms of uh, attractiveness to investors or the best in terms of return to real estate developers. Each of these things means, you know, has different implications. Um, the best in terms of smart city rankings, the best, you know, there's, there's all sorts of metrics to measure what does best mean. But there's definitely a willingness to 
you know, push beyond the business as usual to continuously improve. So I, so I, and that's generally been the case. So these cities have turned into test beds for some of these ideas in some cases. Um, and that's, I, and that, in that sense, they're probably no different than many of the other major cities around the world. Mm. Because now, like uh, many of the cities in Europe, when we see Paris uh, is going for the 15-minute city, many of the cities also like, oh, wow, this is cool. Let's also do it. Uh, now we are talking like some cities, yes, of course, they implemented and ad- adapted to the city, but sometimes like just just because Paris is doing it, so let's do it as well. But like in the region, there's not like um, so much interest in, oh, wow, Paris is doing it. Let's do it like this. I mean, there definitely is, and this is going back to this kind of copy-paste mentality, right? So it definitely attracts attention, just like any other part of the world. And it's uh, it's really down to the professionals to say, okay, I see that you're interested in this topic. Let's dig into it and see how we can apply it. Yeah. Do you also, because you have been working many years, do you also have your own uh, city concept? Um, no, and to me, it's not really about that. And... My to me, my strength is more about um, understanding the global drivers and the and the and the global innovation and how they're relevant to the local context. So, for example, to me, um, biophilic cities, for example, is a fascinating topic that hasn't really been explored in the local context. So that's what I'm trying to kind of think about: how can we make arid cities in the Gulf more biophilic? As an example, but I've, I'm not the person who coined biophilic cities, and I have no, you know, I have no intention of being the only person working on this or the first person working <laughs> on this. Actually, I'm, I, to me, it's more about collaboration. If and you know, yeah. and the in the in the process, I have a an idea of my own, then I'm happy to talk about it. But the the purpose to me, what drives me is not coming up with the best idea. It's um, helping bring the best ideas to the, to the cities I work in and making sure they're locally relevant. Yeah, it's interesting because like through the entire episode now we are talking, you always stress the point of, okay, multidisciplinary, let's talk, let's be a team instead of like, this is my idea, this is, yeah. <laughs> so this is, this is like literally you, you know, like collaborating. Yes, I guess so. So, and also like, hmm? and also like talking, um, you mentioned the beginning, like uh, green urbanista. Then you mentioned like, okay, there's a difference between green and nature, but you still have the green. Uh, Correct. That's, in the order, and that's partly a, a little bit cheeky. It's partly plain words, but also <laughs> also partly because people associate green with sustainability. So sustainable True. urbanista doesn't sound as good as green urbanista. <laughs> <laughs> so you, when you go to in a, in a project with that, what are like your three prior, let not say like agenda, but like the three elements that you think I will bring it to this project or I will work on with this project? So it depends on the project, obviously. I don't go into a project with a with a fixed agenda or um, a direction. It's more about um, um, if you want, a, you know, a frame of mind. So, if, and again, it depends on the project. But generally, I look for what you know. What are the opportunities? You know, the opportunities for um, sustainability in terms of a lower carbon. Uh, built environment what are the opportunities for well-being in terms of a healthier environment what are the opportunities for community and and livability in terms of getting people to to um to to function or to be to live in a place that is conducive to communities and to people enjoying their lives um some of the lenses i bring in so i i'm one of the probably the few um, professionals in the region that actually grew up in the region 
So I know what it feels like to, you know, to spend the whole summer here. I also know what it feels like to live in a an apartment with no access to nature or to, to be a child with no access to public transport or to be in a multi, you know, uh, uh, also, I mean, Dubai 30 years ago was, uh, you know, smaller, but it was also still very multicultural. It was also um, still very, very open. So and in a lot of ways, I don't have the stereotypes from the, the from the outsiders because I'm an insider in many in many so I so and that and actually the first few years of my career in the region I took that for granted and then I realized the stories I was telling people about my childhood to them were like treasures yeah. they don't they never met anybody that grew up in the region so I'm <laughs> I'm more conscious about bringing that angle because it is important to have the experience of you know well this place is actually it used to be this and then is now this and this is why it changed or this is the experience growing up here or this is so I think that angle I um um, I consciously bring to a discussion. It adds a, a personal element and also helps helps bring a local local story as opposed to something that you read in a textbook or um, an outsider's view. Um, I I also try to to me I, I less I'm using the word sustainability less and less because this word is is you know gets used all the time to mean all sorts of things and people you know a lot of people just have. Um, don't have a very positive reaction to it, or they feel like okay, they've you know been there, done that, they they know it, or they've read it, or or they have a particular perception of it that it's very expensive or it's outdated or whatever. So actually, to me, it's about um, what's the ultimate purpose. So if what I'm trying to do is improve air quality, for example, then I'll talk about that. I won't use the word sustainability or reduce energy consumption or save money or whatever it is. So it's about it's about breaking down the the gen the generic goals and terms to what does this mean for the project? What are the benefits to each of the stakeholders? So again, um, and then the 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 well-being, the resilience angles, um, they they may seem like it may seem like, you know, how come you do sustainability and well-being and livability and resilience? Like those, each of these is a topic on its own, right? Uh, so how come you can like, talk about all of them? Well, one, because in many uh, many Sense of the, of the word, I'm a of the word, I'm a generalist. So I'm not an expert on most of these things. Maybe you know, but I know enough about them, and I know enough about the linkages between them and how they relate to the uh, built environment, um, other built environment professionals. And so, and there are lots of linkages and um, uh, um, areas of collaboration, and um, you know, you, you can do put together a strategy that actually, as we talked about capability, you take boxes under sustainability and livability and resilience and well-being. So um, so again, I try to bring that angle and and help people see the, the different benefits that maybe not, not just sustainability, but also this angle or that angle. Yeah. And before we go to the last section of this episode, there are two questions. And the first one, name one project that you're really proud of and then name one activity that you did in your career and you regret so let's start with a good one like um, a project that you're super proud of um dubai expo 2020 so i was my involvement with the project was when the bidding stage so before dubai was even chosen um as part of the part of the team that um helped put the bid bid dossier together from a master plan perspective so a part of the team that was looking at the concept master plan for the site but also because I was looking after the sustainability bit. So 
shaping the sustainability story for the site, but also for for the bid dossier. So I was, and then being part of the um, the workshops that happened when all the different delegates came and during the during the bidding process. So that was a you know an amazing experience. And in my mind, if if what I did helped um, Dubai host this event, then that's something very positive in my mind. Nice, nice, good job. Thank you. Um, one decision I regret was that the is that the yeah yeah something you did in your career and you regret now when you're looking back something and I did my career and regret it's it um it started probably before before my professional career so my academic career if you want so I went from a bachelor's in chemistry and public health to doing a um a graduate degree in analytical chemistry the bit I regret is not the graduate degree, but in rushing the choice of the degree. So I I basically just chose, I didn't even, I, I went with the easiest team to get into. They were a very good research team, actually one of the best, but it was based on a recommendation of somebody who I trusted. Um, and I didn't spend the time to figure out what am I passionate about? What would I want to do? Um, and so actually I ended up after three years um, getting a master's degree, whereas I had the chance to continue to do a PhD degree um, if I had spent just a bit longer, but I decided not wow. to continue because <laughs> I, I didn't um, enjoy what I was doing. Um, okay. So the regret is not is neither decision to go nor the decision to return. The regret is not giving myself enough chance to choose mm. uh, choose a research topic, choose a research research group that I was truly like your passion. passionate about. That's right. Um, yeah. But part yeah. of that, to be honest, comes with maturity. So I was. Um, 20, yeah. <laughs> a twenty-year-old graduate student at the time, so um, and I mean just that, just the idea of being, you know, in a world-class research facility was yeah, amazing. Yeah, cool. Yeah, yeah. Now it's all because also like this is important what you highlight because many students listening to us, and it's important also like the message from you now is like um, think about what you're like to do and so on and and follow your passion instead of like like a fancy title or or a cool uh, subject like on paper but maybe you're not passionate about that's right that's not one that's not what's gonna make you happy or help you have the right or help you put in all the long hours that's gonna take so you know the more the more you enjoy the the topic or the subject the the more likely it is that you actually put in the effort to get it right yeah yeah interesting and now we are in the final section and this section is about you giving a messages so the first one is like give a message to yourself take it easy <laughs> enjoy uh yeah take it take it easy and enjoy the journey and the second question is that, that you give three takeaway messages to all the listeners okay so so one is one you picked up already uh, in terms of um find out what you're good at and what you're passionate about and um invest in that uh number two is never stop learning be curious and continue to learn whether that's professional growth, personal growth. It's, it all counts. It all, all actually makes you a better person and a better professional. Um, and three is bring your whole self to work. And what I mean by that, it's easy. So I, as a Arab Muslim woman who's not an engineer, who's very visibly Arab and Muslim, <laughs> I, I joined an international consultancy firm when I was no, 25. It was based in Dubai, so I, in a sense, the wider context was fairly friendly, and the company was very friendly. But nobody, when I walked in, nobody looked like me. I, I, I actually, the whole industry. This is we're talking about 2008. 
you know, they were, I would say, almost zero role models. I could, there were, I had lots of role models, lots of mentors, but nobody that I could relate to in terms of um, somebody that was from a similar culture, from has similar values, personal values, etc. So I had to figure out, you know, what was appropriate for me every step of the way. Um, and a lot, so that was an interesting challenge. I think it made me a stronger person. What the flip side of that, though, was I think there were times where, you know, I didn't hide my identity visibly, but I probably hid part of who I was and, you know, how I acted at work because it was, you know, it was easier to fit in or I didn't have to worry about being, you know, too loud or too girly or whatever. So it's, but actually, if I had brought my full self to work, and it's easier to say that as a mature professional than it is as a younger professional, because you want, you just want to kind of get by and, Con, you know, if everything about you doesn't conform to the norm, then some, you know, that something be um, um, be just normal. Not, uh, but actually, there's in the environment I was in, it was a safe environment that appreciated diversity, so I didn't really have to worry about that. And I, I know that not everybody has opportunity to be in that environment. There are still many environments that are you know, racist, sexist, ages, etc., etc. But still, where each of us are brave enough to one, figure out who we are. You know, dig dig deep and that's probably the harder bit and then two show up to work and I'm not saying you know I'm not talking about show up to work in jeans and sneakers because that's the type of person you are I'm saying show up to work with a bring your personality to work interesting thank you and the last question is going to be you asking it so what is your question to us What did you uh, benefit most out of today? I'd be curious what people uh, found the most useful out of uh, today and uh, this conversation and what they'd like to hear more on. Nice. Huda, thank you so much for giving your time. I know it's weekend, so I really appreciate it. And I hope we continue in an interesting conversation. So thanks again and keep up the good work. My pleasure. Thank you very much. This was a lot of fun. Thank you.